All right, good evening. Um, I am Francesco Caselli. I'm a professor in the economics department here at the LSE. I have the pleasure of uh, welcoming you to uh, the 2016 uh, Economica Phillips Lecture. Uh, the Economica Phillips Lecture is uh, so named after the famous uh, Phillips Curve paper, which is one of the many um, very, very influential papers that Economica uh, published, one of the most influential papers that Economica published. Um, it's given every year now by a distinguished macroeconomist um, and it's later published in the journal. Uh, previous uh, speakers at the Economica Phillips lectures have been uh, Robert Lucas, uh, Tom Sargent, Chris Pizarides, and Robert Barrow. Uh, like his predecessors, uh, Robert Hall is an absolutely towering figure in modern macroeconomics. He has made major contributions in uh, virtually every area of macroeconomics. Uh, consumption theory, uh, investment theory, uh, labor markets and unemployment, uh, business cycles, uh, growth and development. Uh, essentially, there is no uh, area of macro where can you mention and uh, a macroeconomist who is well-trained will not be able to point you to some major contribution that, that Bob has made um, that have uh, influenced that field in a major way. So I'm not going to single out any specific area because the, uh, the contribution of so many is so important. Uh, I'm just going to mention uh, purely on an autobiographical note uh, that uh, Bob's uh, 1978 paper on testing uh, uh, implications of the permanent income hypothesis uh, was the first paper in uh, the reading list of the first graduate macro course I've taken. Um, so um, it has always stayed with me, not only because uh, it was one of the first papers I read, but also because um, it is a model uh, that has always stayed with me as uh, a way of how you should uh, read data in the light of theory, uh, which is really one of the hallmarks of uh, Robert's work and something that he has taught to do to generations of macroeconomists. Uh, so with that, I would like uh, to ask Robert to start his uh, Phillips lecture. Thanks very much for those kind words. Um, it's a great pleasure and privilege to um, uh, give this talk. Uh, uh, this is a place that I've spent a lot of time at historically, uh, especially in the 1980s. Um, so it's very familiar. My genealogy is exclusively British. Um, I, uh, I always like to say, when I grew up, we spoke the language of the old country at the dining room table. And they say, oh, what? What language is that? Uh, English. Uh, and all four of my grandparents were subjects of Queen Victoria. I, I may be the only one in the room who can say that. Um, okay, so uh, today I'm going to talk about uh, the general topic of uh, the rather poor experience that almost all advanced economies have had uh, since uh, the 2008 crisis. Of course, the economy I know well, and I'll be talking about almost exclusively, is the U.S. economy. Um, but I think some of the ideas here are ones that could be mapped out and, and considered uh, in other economies. And I, may, I know a little bit about what's happened in Britain, so I may occasionally or you may ask questions uh, or make comments relative to these ideas um, uh, here. Uh, let me start by uh, showing you some calculations relative to 
uh, this topic um, that I've done. Uh, these are ideas I've been turning over in different forms. And the, the last slide, which I won't show, but is available if you download the slides from my website, gives the sites for my papers and others that I'll mention tonight. Um, uh, so looking first at 2010, which in the US was the year of maximum unemployment and the recession that, that followed uh, the crisis. Um, uh, GDP, in a simple calculation I've done, and many people have done this one way or the other, but relative to past trends, GDP was about 10% below, 10.0% uh, uh, in these calculations, uh, below where we thought it would have been uh, if we'd made a forecast uh, in 2007 before the, before the crisis. Um, and uh, not surprisingly, given that there had been so much job loss, um, the, uh, of the 10 percentage points, about a third, 3.3 percentage points, uh, represent the fact that there were just fewer people working, measured by the amount of unemployment. So, uh, in other words, if, if all these other things had happened that I'm going to talk about and emphasize, actually, uh, had not happened, uh, then, uh, and there'd only been a certain number of people stop working and we have some idea about the production function that they participate in, uh, then there would have been a 3.3 percentage point uh, decline. Uh, I'm going to come back later and explain uh, these calculations more fully, but this is basically just a, a, a roadmap for what we're going to talk about. Um, another interesting factor uh, that was novel and a big surprise was the shrinkage of the labor force. There was really no basis for thinking that that was going to happen um, before in the forecasts that were made of the labor force in 2007. Uh, certainly didn't anticipate this. Um, and that, again, resulted in fewer people working, and fewer people working means less output. Uh, 1.3 percentage points. Not a big deal uh, as of uh, two years later, 2010. Uh, a somewhat bigger deal, the second behind uh, the effect that there are just fewer people working because of unemployment, uh, was reduced productivity growth. Um, whether productivity growth uh, is something that responds to uh, what happens in the economy, in particular whether it, f it falls when uh, things go wrong in the economy, when uh, wrong like all these other numbers, uh, is, is a very interesting and un unresolved question. But just looking at what happened, which is that productivity growth in the U.S. economy has been... Uh, very poor uh, since 2008. Not so great. Uh, you have to, to see really good numbers. You have to step back in time. I'll show those numbers later. Um, so that's uh, 3.1 percentage points. And the other thing is that uh, in every recession, and certainly in this recession, capital formation uh, was impeded. And I'll talk about why that happened. But numerically, again, we know, we know how the capital stock contributes through the production function to producing output. Uh, and as of this time, uh, that was 2.3 percentage points. These numbers are not so different from what you would have seen for any other recession that, that caused uh, a bulge of unemployment. In this case, about five percentage points increase in unemployment. Um, uh, so th these weren't such a big surprise. But now if we look at, oh dear. Huh. Well, okay, now magic. Okay, all right, well, stand by. Um, Okay, so now let's 
fast forward to the last complete year, which, for which we have data, 2015, last year. Um, by 2015, the excess unemployment had essentially disappeared. It's, even, it's actually numerically that the U.S. economy today is very close to what most people think is full employment. It's 5.0% until tomorrow. It'll be a new number tomorrow. Um, but it'll probably be very similar. Um, so the only reason anything is showing here is that the standard here is what was happening in 2007 uh, when the unemployment rate was, uh, uh, was quite low. Um, but in any case, I think it's pretty well agreed today that the sort of the standard idea of what's full employment measured by unemployment, which I think is the best way to do it, uh, is that the U.S. economy is at full employment. Now, what we teach in macro, the part of macro that I'm going to criticize here, in effect, is, well, if we're back at full employment, then uh, GDP ought to be back where it belongs. That idea is just catastrophically wrong with respect to, to what happened in the U.S., and actually, if you go back and did a similar exercise for other uh, uh, recessions, you'd find things like depleted capital stock and reduced productivity growth as well. You would not find a uh, shrunken labor force. The shrunken labor force is something very special. That, and We'll talk about that, but I, I don't have a complete answer to that. Uh, but these two factors would show up typically in other recessions. Um, but eventually... Typically, the economy does make its way back to whatever its previous growth path was. It hasn't happened yet. I'll talk at the end about whether it will happen, but uh, it's certainly nowhere close uh, today. So now, now we have people, the normal fraction of the labor force working. We have a substantially smaller labor force, um, and that's now 3.3 percentage points. And this is the remarkable thing. We're now 15.4 percentage points below uh, the previous growth path, whereas when unemployment was at its maximum, when you think that the economy is in worse shape, it was, it was 10 percentage points below. So these follow-on uh, uh, factors, especially the reduced productivity, uh, uh, is, is really, really a big deal. Um, so when you, when you think about... Uh, what's happened in this economy, and this is true of other economies as well, uh, the, we have stagnation in the sense that we're 15 percentage points below, and that's really a lot, uh, where we might previously thought we would be. Um, but it's all what you might consider at this point supply factors. Uh, it's a smaller labor supply. Labor, at, in normal times with normal unemployment, you can interpret... Uh, the labor force uh, as, a, as a measure of labor supply. Um, and, uh, and labor supply is contracted. Uh, productivity growth uh, didn't occur nearly as rapidly as, as it had been uh, on a historical path. And, and this, is the, this is something that's quite endogenous. That is, because the economy was in very bad shape in 2010, there was less investment. And that accumulates to this depleted capital stock effect which, again, is very large, 5.1%. So we live in an economy in the U.S. today in which the supply of the ability of the economy to produce output is very much impaired relative to what the previous growth path would be. Now, the, giving a welfare interpretation of that is an interesting challenge because we don't know. I'll present some evidence that maybe this isn't such a bad thing. Um, obviously, product, the loss of productivity growth we don't know whether that was the result of, of, of the, uh, the factors that gave, created the Great Recession or not. 
but certainly this, the welfare effects of, of, uh, of lack of productivity growth are, are very substantial. Um, so, so again, you've got to think that this is macroeconomics has to be much more about supply than it has been traditionally. Um, and the sort of general idea of demand, you know, measured by, say, by unemployment, is just no longer an issue. We're, we're, we've solved that problem, and yet uh, what remains is huge. Uh, so the effort, way, way too much intellectual effort has gone into just the sort of the unemployment side, although it's been, uh, it, it's been a good idea, but, uh, but we need to think about these other factors much more if we want to really understand uh, issues uh, that are, seem very acute today uh, of stagnation. All right, so uh, I'm going to go through a set of topics here and show pictures. A lot of the pictures will look like uh, this one, so let me explain what the rules of this are. I made these rules up, uh, but I, I found it uh, quite instructive. The rule is plot some time series, like here. They're, all, they're almost all, if they're all available starting 1948, that's when the unemployment survey started, so it seems like a very good time. It's also when we had finished dealing with all the after effects of World War II. Um, uh, and it goes through, it actually goes through 2015 this year. Uh, okay, and then just <coughs> mechanically, with no filtering or any, any of the gadgets that macroeconomists have, have invented, uh, just change the growth rate such that this level and this level are exactly the same. That's all I've done. I've just, if you look at real GDP, of course, grows right quite fast. You can't see the wiggles in it very well uh, if you plot it without detrending it. That's the only reason I detrend it, because then I can magnify uh, these movements, pay attention to the fact that this isn't zero, this is 15. Uh, but I've already given you the numbers, so you have a sense of what these uh, numbers are. Okay, so what happened to the path of real GDP in the U.S. over this period? The answer is it kind of bounced around uh, uh, at a kind of a normal and not very high growth rate. Then there was an incredible spurt uh, uh, which occurred in the 1960s. And then, then, then the growth rate, see these are levels, so this means, this means the growth rate uh, is just the trend growth rate for, for a long time. And then some tarting, starting sometime in, in 2000, but especially after the, the crisis in 2008, uh, it's gone back down and we lost all the extra growth that had occurred in this period, we lost right after the crisis. So this gives a sense of just how big uh, this effect has been measured by uh, GDP, which is kind of a, a good overall measure of what the economy is, is producing. Um, so this is, this is kind of the starting point for this, and everything else I'm going to do is trying to get at issues of of how that could possibly happen. How could we lose uh, that much, 15% today, uh, as a result of the, all the adverse developments that uh, have occurred in the U.S. economy? Um, uh, okay, so, yeah. Um, so that's kind of the background. Now, that, now we'll talk about some of these uh, individual elements that appeared in that uh, starting table. So this is the, the history of unemployment. Um, Unemployment in the U.S. is a very stable phenomenon. The general level of unemployment has averaged around 5.5, or currently 5.8%. If you just take the average of all these numbers, 5.8% of the labor force uh, is 
actively looking for work and counted as unemployed uh, all the time, periodically uh, there is a burst. For example, mid, this was the recession of the mid-1970s. Uh, this was the previous worst recession, 1981-82, uh, uh, when unemployment jumped up. There was a recession in 1990. There was what quite a mild recession uh, in 2001, and then there was the Great Recession. It's not so obvious, by the way, measured by unemployment, that we should call it the Great Recession. Um, uh, in terms of where unemployment went, it was almost exactly the same as in the previous bad recession. Um, we could call it the worst recession of the last 70 years. I think that would be apt. It's nothing, nothing, nothing like uh, the, the uh, Great Depression of, that started in 1929. Nothing at all. Uh, that would just be totally off the scale uh, compared to anything it shows here. Uh, uh, okay, so, uh, and again, unemployment is, is, I think, a reliable measure uh, that tells uh, how much unused resources there is, uh, the level of unused resources uh, in the economy, which spikes up uh, at every recession and spiked up. Then in the U.S. economy, and this is one of the interesting features of the U.S. economy, is how quickly... Uh, uh, unemployment comes back to normal, especially compared to other economies, especially continental European economies. You'll see unemployment go up and then remain uh, high for an extended period. Spain is one of the extreme examples, but unemployment jumped up to 20%, and it's been rattling around, just, just, just beginning to come down from that level, as opposed to the U.S., which even uh, here has got back to normal, um, most of the way back to normal in four or five years, uh, and, uh, and is totally back to normal uh, today. Um, and you can see that it's roughly comparable. The, the speed at which to unemployment is resolved uh, is, is a, pretty much the same, uh, depending on exactly how you calculate it. It's always been the case that it takes some time. Unemployment zips up when there's an adverse development. Um, uh, in this case, there was the uh, September started most aggressively in September of uh, 2008 when the crisis occurred, and then more gradually comes back down. That's, that's a repeated pattern. What happened here is very typical uh, of uh, what happens uh, in recessions, and it didn't last that long. It lasted about uh, the normal amount uh, of time. So it's the other things. It's, it's whatever's going on in the economy apart from that uh, if it had just been the, the, the joblessness uh, as in previous recessions, uh, we, wouldn't be, uh, we wouldn't be still agonizing over this. We'd, it would be just another historical recession. Um, so one thing that's particularly apt to, to speak about here is there's a very well-developed theory um, of uh, unemployment which reads on this question. Um, and uh, Chris Pisarides faculty member here, uh, was one of the major contributors. There are two and a half major contributors to it, and he's one of the full ones. Um, and uh, um, uh, so, so here I'm going to show you two pictures. One is one that's suggested by uh, what had been how most of the profession, including me, interpreted uh, the theory, uh, the Mortensen Pisarides theory of, of uh, unemployment, which related it to productivity. So the two scales here, 
show um, on the right scale, uh, the, uh, the blue line uh, is output per worker, and the red line is just exactly the same picture I showed before of unemployment. Um, there's not a lot of correlation. Uh, and this is a fact that became kind of embarrassment, and, and people started saying, well, maybe it's not such a great theory. But the theory itself actually had so many, so it had beautiful ideas and moving parts in it, um, which didn't require the notion that productivity was the driving force. So try this picture. Different driving force. Financial driving force. And why is that important? Because uh, job creation, which is what lies behind unemployment, the U.S. economy uh, has a new hires rate of about 3 million or 4 million workers per month. So businesses have to be constantly feeling that it would be financially appropriate to hire more workers. Uh, otherwise, workers won't be hired and unemployment will, will rise rapidly. Um, in fact, incredibly rapidly if none were hired, um, which has, of course, never happened. Um, uh, so, so the stock market also reflects the same issues. And it's, it's been known for a long time that other forms of investment uh, are highly correlated with the stock market. Um, uh, it's a bit of a new idea, though it shouldn't be, because if you read the first chapter of Pisaridi's book, two th- in two, published in 2000, uh, the interest rate is right there. Right there in the chapter one uh, has the interest rate in it as a determinant of unemployment. Um, uh, but it turns out that this connection with the stock market is something that's more recently and something that I've been involved in, but others have done, worked on it too. Uh, and you can see in particular, in recent years, the, the correlation is just incredible. So, so of course, the, the uh, unemployment is low when the stock market's high. So I inverted the scale here uh, for, so on the right-hand side, we have the reciprocal of the stock market. And look at how that moves. I mean, it's really just remarkable how closely it tracks. So the same factors are being capitalized uh, in the stock market as are reflected in the capitalization of how valuable it is to hire a worker. And that seems to be really a good idea. Uh, and since it turns out that the stock market is very much tracks the business cycle, in particular recently, uh, but also you know the, the previous big recession would have very much the same we still don't really fully understand this period when uh, the stock market was weak, uh, but uh, sorry, the stock market was strong, but uh, uh, unemployment was somewhat high. Um, so, uh, so this, this, I think this sort of uh, resolves a, a, what had been a problem, uh, a widely recognized problem in our, in our grasp of unemployment, and it's a way of understanding why unemployment is highly cyclical because. Uh, there's something that happens in a recession that causes uh, both the stock market and, the, and, and plant and equipment investment and uh, uh, investment in new, new workers to, uh, uh, to all look uh, unfavorable in a, in, a, in a weak period and very favorable in a strong period. The stock market in the U.S. has turned very strong. Uh, hiring is very strong in the U.S. today. It's, in fact, by some measures... Uh, we have the tightest labor market we've ever had. Um, so there's nothing wrong with the U.S. economy when it looks when you look at the rate of job formation, the rate of unemployment, or the stock market. They all look great. Uh, 
you'd never know that it was a stagnated economy by those measures, but uh, it really is. Um, okay, now this, is, this looks at, this goes back to this question of just how important is it uh, that unemployment itself represents people not working and therefore not contributing to production. Um, so you could take real GDP, and this is exactly the same picture of real GDP as I showed before, and adjust it saying, what would it be if there was only one thing different, and that is the unemployment rate is uh, its normal level all the time instead of fluctuating, rising in recessions and, and falling in recoveries. Uh, and that's this blue line that, that pretty much tracks the red line. So if you thought that the really important thing that, that resulted in output falling in the recession and rising in a boom was because in a recession, few people are working. In, the, in a boom, lots of people are working. You're dead wrong. And you've always been dead wrong. So the emphasis that Macro has given to the notion that uh, uh, the sort of the supply side issues, like labor supply, productivity growth, and the things that I'm emphasizing, kind of got washed out of thinking. And there was uh, a lot of belief that some of the main thing to look at um, uh, is, uh, uh, is unemployment. Nonetheless, of course, unemployment can be important, and, uh, and you can see that uh, the adjustment is particularly large during the period right after the uh, crisis. So it's not to say that it isn't an important phenomenon. It's to say there's lots of other important phenomena uh, that need to be brought into. If you want to understand uh, this movements of, of real GDP, uh, uh, you've got to think, look at these other factors, not just, not filter them out in particular. So um, this is the, the worst crime in macro today is to filter data, um, other than detrending it just mechanically like I have, right? Um, okay, uh, shrinkage of the labor force. Um, this is a really interesting, uh, important topic. Um, uh, so... One thing is uh, we need to think about it separately for men and women because you can see that the historical trends uh, have um, been very extreme. I did not uh, detrend these because I think the trends are so well known. Um, and in any case, you can see the important movements uh, without detrending. So for women, uh, there was a very long period uh, starting from a low level of... of uh, participation where uh, uh, women age, I guess it's all 16 plus, uh, only a little over 30% of them were in the labor force. Grew, 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 grew. Then it flattened out, uh, moving into the new millennium. And then you can see that right around, but a little bit before the crisis, there's definitely, the, for the first time, for women, there was this clear sign of, of decline. Um, and, and that was remarkable and certainly not forecasted. If you look at forecasts of participation made in 2000, and there are plenty of people, agencies, that, that regularly do those forecasts, so it's easy to make that. They all had, they recognized that women participation had flattened out, but they didn't anticipate this uh, decline. The same thing at the same time happened for men. Now, for men, the, there had been a, 
established downward trend uh, in labor supply per person. Um, but again, you see that uh, there was a surprise, uh, and I, believe me, it was a surprise. It was a, um, even though I didn't have any fixed ideas about this, it was very much a surprise to me to see it. Un, un, because historically, if you look at this, you say the worst, the worst pre-recession was right in this time, you don't see any. There's nothing here or here. You may see just a little tiny decline, a little tiny decline, but nothing that... And remember that the change in unemployment was the same uh, in 1982 as it was here. Something very special uh, is happening uh, in the U.S. economy with respect to labor supply. Um, and it, it's my, some people say, well, it's not really a reliable measure of labor supply, but I don't know. I've studied these numbers uh, and the survey that's behind them very extensively almost throughout my career, and I'm pretty much persuaded that this is, this is labor supply in the sense that uh, these are people who, the propensity to seek work, look for a job, and then work, uh, has declined among both men and women about the same amount. Uh, and there's something going on uh, that nobody expected that had not happened in previous recessions uh, that's happening here. There's, there's a very, very, very strong belief among American economists and policymakers that is very hard to dislodge that this just represents some different way that the labor market is still responding to lack of jobs. There's a very strong belief that, uh, well, it used to be that unemployment would be high if there were lack of jobs, but now unemployment doesn't send the signal, but participation does. So there's another, another phrase for this is there's hidden unemployment of people who don't meet the standard to be considered job seekers, which would cause them to be called unemployed, but they're the kind of people who would have previously been a job seeker. But, you know, those of us who've studied the exact way that these surveys work uh, and burred into the details, you find no support for that idea whatsoever. What you find over and over is there's just less propensity uh, in the U.S. labor force uh, to go out and, and look actively for a job and then take the job. Um, so, uh, this is a subject that that's, should generate, and I think is belatedly. For a long time, no one believed this was happening, uh, thought it would be reversed. Now, I should say that just in the last six months, there has been some reversal. The, we have finally stopped. You, you can't see in these, these numbers, but if you plotted the monthly numbers here, you'd see just a tiny upturn. So well, you can actually see it, I guess, from in. Um, uh, but it's very small. Uh, and it's, it has not gone anywhere toward reversing uh, what is about a three percentage point uh, decline for, for both groups. So this question of, of working um, uh, is a really interesting one. One thing it's important to know about uh, work in the U.S. economy is that there's been a very big difference across different groups in the reward to working. The well-educated uh, workers with experience, uh, training, and a successful record have seen very rapid wage increases in real terms. Uh, others, less educated in particular, 
uh, have had stagnant, uh, not increasing real wages, and some groups have seen declines in real wages. So there have been some very striking changes. Uh, in the year 2000, half of all teenagers in the U.S. worked at any given time. Today, 25% work at any given time. There's been a, a fall of half in, in the propensity of teenagers to work. Um, so, uh, so there's something really important going on. Uh, and if you dig into this a little further, which I've been working on, this is a, a picture from a, a little paper that was published by the San Francisco Federal Reserve Bank um, with a co-author of mine. Um, and again, the site is, is posted on my website. Um, this looks into a question which had completely escaped research so far, which is uh, almost all the research that had been done on, on this question of labor supply had just looked at workers as if they were isolated individuals, not affiliated them with a family. Uh, it turns out, though, that affiliating them with a family is really important, and it tells a very interesting story, because here are the more prosperous families in the U.S. population, and, it's, and here's where it's important to remember what I said about workers. The most prosperous families typically have one uh, fairly high wage. Uh, you know, somebody who makes, uh, say, seventy-five or $100,000 a year, there's lots and lots of families in the upper half of the income distribution for whom there's one worker who does that, uh, man or woman. Um, well, in those, that's where all of the decline in participation, and this is adjusted for the fact that over this period there was some change in the composition of the labor force, so that's adjusted out using standard statistical regression methods. Um, and so what do you see? If you divide it into five different uh, income groups, all of the decline in participation, all of the substantial decline, and this is among uh, people 25 to 59, um, uh, is among the better-off families. So you can immediately reject the notion that this decline in participation is just another problem of lower-income families. They, shown here, have actually seen some increases in participation. Uh, okay, so, that, so that's one interesting piece of evidence, and I think this, this deserves a lot more attention, this idea of considering this this a collapse of labor supply um, uh, obviously needs to be uh, asked, you know, who else is in the family? Um, the U.S. has another very interesting uh, survey. It, it, it doesn't have much history. It's the time use survey. It started in uh, the year 2003. Uh, so I looked at this and compared 2003, which was a year of moderately... It was a post-recession year like 2013. It's matched pretty well with 2013 in terms of, of the state of the labor market. Not great in either case. Uh, so that's a good way to make the comparison because some of these things do change depending on the state of the labor market. And these, so what, the, what this survey measures is what, what you do during a week, how many hours you spend, non-sleeping hours, you spend in different uh, activities. And I've, I've put them into different categories. There's much more detail. You can go back to the survey and find out exactly what people were doing in an incredible amount of, uh, of areas. Um, so um, did they, did they, what about market work? 
Okay, so these are, this is basically reflects. Um, so for men, uh, there was a very large decline in market work. For women, there was a, a pretty big, not, not as big as men. Um, uh, and that reflects primarily the decline in participation. Um, there was also a little bit of a difference in, in unemployment, but it's primarily the same numbers you saw before, decline in participation. Uh, one idea that floats around uh, is that if, if people aren't working now, maybe they're getting educated uh, so that they can make more later, investing in human capital. Uh, well, what do we find there? Nothing. Just tiny, tiny changes. So, so this, it was not, it, it is true that when the labor market softens, it's hard to find a job that two people do go back to work. But comparing these two years where the, the labor market was a little bit soft in both cases uh, gets rid of that uh, and shows that there, there's no, been no tendency to substitute education uh, for work. Um, and uh, so what are the big pluses? Uh, well, one is this category called personal care. And the other is a category called leisure. And they both show big increases. So, so to understand the flip side of what are people doing because they're not spending time working, uh, and the answer is uh, some combination of something called personal care, uh, which, of course, has a big leisure component as well, uh, and leisure. If you drill into this and ask what kind of leisure... It's video activities. What happens, and this is well known, uh, that if you look at what happens, especially to men, what do men do uh, if they're at home uh, because they're, they're not working, because they were retired, or, or because they haven't been able to find a job? Do they wash dishes? Uh, do they paint the garage? No, they spend time sitting in front of a video device. And, of course, video now covers many different interesting forms of things to do. Um, so, so you reach the conclusion here that there's been some substitution. Uh, it's very clear that the substitution, I, I, I don't have all the numbers today, but it's very clear that the substitution occurs um, uh, among uh, uh, those who aren't the top paid. They're not the people making $75,000 a year. They're not dropping, they're not staying home from those jobs. Uh, but uh, uh, members of households, uh, especially young adults and teenagers, uh, in the households where there's ample income from a high-income uh, earner, are much less likely to work. And so there are people, not me, because I, haven't, I can't claim to have researched this, but who, who believe that maybe it's the fact that there's electronic entertainment has become very inexpensive and very compelling so it used to be that somebody who was kind of on the margin of working or not uh, is now saying, who used to say, being at home is boring. But now it's not so boring, and it's not expensive to, to, uh, to use this form of entertainment. Anyway, that's not my idea, but uh, uh, it's a, it, it, sort of, it certainly fits the data. Um, so you can see that uh, you, you don't want to say oh, this decline in participation is a complete disaster. It shows that America's falling apart. What it seems to say more is that there's more specialization of activities. Uh, 
the market is generating jobs that pay very well for educated people, the upper, the upper half of the distribution of, of uh, education and skill. Uh, you know, you hear, you hear ideas that, that everybody's earnings are, are stalled. That's not true. The earnings of some people are, 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 are rising in a pretty satisfactory way, and then other earnings are declining. Well, the declining people say, who live in households with people who are doing well, say, why should I work? Uh, work is not very well paid, um, and, uh, and I don't have to work. I mean, the family doesn't have its back to the wall. So that's what we're talking about here. It's very important to understand that. So, so it's a complicated social phenomenon of increased specialization of the household, especially the, the, uh, the, the household that contains one well-paid uh, uh, member. Um, so it's a much more subtle uh, story than you hear anywhere uh, in the media. Um, okay, so now let's talk about productivity. Productivity is the, by far the biggest issue today in stagnation. I, I remember those numbers that productivity is more than 6% of the 15 percentage points. Um, uh, okay, so, so here's the record of... Uh, of the level of productivity, again, detrended um, uh, over the same period starting in 1948. Um, so we had a period of rapid productivity growth, then a period of normal productivity growth, so productivity is flat when you detrend it, um, then, then productivity growth kind of declined, then, then we had a, another period, and this was the period of great excitement about the internet. You can see this started in the, right around when uh, uh, Al Gore invented the internet. And, uh, <laughs> it took off, and productivity took off, and it seemed this was great. You know, we, all kinds of great things are happening uh, uh, because we've harnessed this wonderful new, highly expandable uh, IT-based technology. Um, and then productivity just fell apart. This fell apart, um, and uh, and that's a huge issue. That's that is by far the biggest issue today. Uh, is that we've just we've somehow lost the ability to to have new ideas, uh, new products, uh, all the stuff that that seemed to work so well uh, in the late '90s and early 2000s, uh, just completely fell apart. Notice that it, the falling apart occurred before the crisis. So here we are. In the, the, the apex of this boom was around 2004. Uh, and then pre-crisis, it started down. And then it's continued down. There's a certain amount of noise uh, in productivity numbers. So you shouldn't take each annual change seriously. But the trend has been very, very adverse. Um, so when you hear about the, the fact that so many people's real wages aren't growing as fast as they used to. Real wages are fundamentally limited by productivity. Productivity tells you um, uh, what uh, uh, you know what there is to spread between the owners of factors. Uh, and if productivity is not growing, you can't generate uh, 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 growth. Um, especially what really matters is the failure of real wages in general to grow. Again, I remind you that that doesn't mean that everybody's real wages haven't grown. Well-educated 
experienced workers have done very well, but the rest of the labor force has not. Um, uh, okay, so uh, one, one thing about productivity is that it, it doesn't arise by magic. Uh, it arises because people do research and have good ideas and develop new products. Um, and uh, so um, you can look at the flow of those activities, which are, are tabulated in the uh, U.S. national income accounts, uh, and recently, a lot of work has been done uh, in the income accounts to keep track of all the different things that are inputs to producing productivity. So the idea of that productivity is something that it has its own production function um, uh, is, is very uh, much embedded in, in modern macro thinking. Um, and, well, what do we get... Uh, the, uh, the, there's a, been a, over this period, and again, this is detrended, this is a very rapidly growing. It grows at 6% per year. It's going to take over the whole economy. Uh, but, but it stopped growing nearly that rate uh, starting uh, at, at the end of the dot-com boom and the tech boom that ended in 2000. Uh, so we had growth then in a period of... of uh, less growth, then more growth, and then spectacular growth. Then ever since then, and again, this comes long, here's 2008, uh, happened long before, uh, but the resources that, and this is mostly controlled by business, it's not, some of this is federally funded, but most of it's not. Uh, For some reason, there's been a decision by businesses not to put the same level of resources uh, that they had uh, historically, especially during the during the tech boom, um, but it's just it's just it's just really collapsed remarkably. Uh, shows no sign yet of of reversing. Now that's an aspect. It's the most important aspect, probably, of of the fact that uh, investment in other things, plant and equipment, has also uh, been just surprisingly weak. I'll come to that. Um, but this. Failure to uh, invest in uh, intellectual property products or activities that become inputs to producing uh, productivity uh, is just remarkable. Um, and it's the subject of, of uh, some recent attention. I think the next, yeah, the next slide. Okay, so, um, so there's two, it turns out there's two steps that are important in thinking about this process. One is the one that's documented here, uh, which is the resources, R&D spending and the other types of resources, purchases of software uh, that go into, go into the process of uh, creating new stuff. But it turns out that uh, it's possible, and, the, and the, the process that generates new ideas and new products kind of chugs through a recession. Notice that nothing special happened here uh, uh, there wasn't a, just a, a big collapse. There was an ongoing continuation of the collapse that started several years earlier, uh, but nothing special happened in the recession, and that's generally true uh, of, of this IP investment. But you can think of, of the, the, this R&D as putting new things on the shelf. There's a quite separate uh, process of then adopting the new technology, uh, 
And adoption, it turns out, has always been and was uh, recently something that's very cyclical. So there's a, the history shows more or less continuous flow of new products and ideas, but in a recession, they pile up on shelves, and then when the recovery occurs normally, they get taken off the shelf. So you see a, a period of reduced productivity growth uh, as they're piling up on the shelf, and then they're available sort of there, no, no more investment, just be adopted, and they're adopted, and there's a, 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 a surge of productivity growth. Um, so here's, this is the only British data uh, I have, but uh, this is information from a paper, I won't attempt to pronounce the name, um, which is cited again on the sites that are on my website, um, uh, that uh, looks at this gray period is, is the period when the economy was, uh, was collapsing after uh, the crisis, um, and which was a big deal here as well as in the U.S., of course, um, and uh, this was the diffusion for broadband technologies. Uh, and the adoption fell dramatically, and then it recovered. So this paper that contains this information levers that idea, not completely convincingly, but it's certainly an interesting start, in, you know, from, from basically from this evidence, transports it across the Atlantic, uh, uh, and says it applies to all technology uh, in the U.S., uh, and then actually is able to explain the, the big slowdown in productivity growth uh, that's occurred uh, in the U.S. And, silver lining, um, uh, that says that the shelves are groaning with products that, that have been developed but not uh, adopted yet uh, since we've had uh, such a poor economy. And as if we get on track again, uh, we may see uh, a resumption of more normal levels of productivity growth. I mean, that would be a great thing. Um, uh, others, uh, there's an economist who is a classmate of mine at MIT, Robert Gordon, who says something that people have been saying for years, which is all the great inventions have already been made. Uh, you just can't think of any further invention that... that could raise productivity, um, and that in particular, going back to uh, to uh, uh, to this period, that this was kind of a golden age uh, when all kinds of new products come in, commercial jets, um, uh, and then ever since then, uh, there's been uh, this gradual decline, uh, and that we're just going to see a continuation of that decline. Um, it'd be very interesting to see which one's right. Uh, one thing you can see is that there's a lot of noise and a lot of variability in productivity growth. It's very hard to forecast productivity growth. So uh, I'm not going to try to do that. But it's the absolutely most important issue. Um, now that we've conquered unemployment, got unemployment back to normal, if there were an area where we had some idea of what policy would be appropriate, uh, it's the place, the biggest payoff would be to restore productivity growth. But we don't have an... We, we don't have a policy agenda, I certainly don't, that would get uh, you know, the private economy to, to return to its previous uh, pattern of creating and adopting new technology and getting back to higher rates of growth. So, um, it's still, But it's the thing to think about. Um, 
Okay, then there's capital. By capital, I mean plant and equipment. So it's, we now have old-style old capital and new-style capital. So I've talked about new-style capital. Now we'll go back to old-style capital. And again, we have a very dismal, uh, just remarkably dismal... Uh, oops, there's an S missing there. Uh, uh, just a dismal record. So this is, this is from the same uh, accounting system that's used to measure uh, productivity... Um, and it's an input calculated from investment data um, to accumulate it into a stock. It's a capital stock of uh, business capital, plant and equipment. Not, it does not include uh, the categories that uh, intellectual property categories, but just plant and equipment. Um, and what's happened to it? Uh, and again, detrended. It's something that typically grows. Um, and has grown, but just not as much as normal. Um, uh, so like many things, it, uh, it, it, it vary, has varied. Uh, it, it, too, uh, had a big increase at the same time that IP uh, capital did. And then, and then since then, and again, this is well before. So it, got, it, it was declining and then declined more rapidly. Here's the crisis. And it, still, it appears to be still declining. So there's a mystery about here we have an economy that is back to normal in terms of, of uh, labor input, but in terms of capital input, it's, it's way behind uh, where it would have been um, if it hadn't been for whatever is causing this trouble. And again, it doesn't seem to be specifically... It was worsened by uh, the Great Recession, but it started before... Um, and, and this, I think, is, is one of the big mysteries that research has not made too much progress on. I mean, we have, I mentioned that the stock market is, is an issue here. But, you know, the stock market looks great. If the stock market were still uh, as persuasive to business that this is the time to invest because uh, uh, discount rates are low and, uh, uh, and profitability is high, I'll show you that in a second, um, all the signs uh, of that type, stock market and profitability, suggest that uh, business capital should be going back to its previous growth path, but that's just not happened. Um, that, well, let me, first of all, let me show you the, um, this is the economist measure of what uh, other business people might call uh, profitability, but um, it contains the entire return to capital, so it's, it's profit as normally measured as a residual plus interest plus depreciation. So it's everything that is assigned to capital. Um, and then it takes that as a ratio to the value of capital. This is very close to uh, a measure of the return to capital. Um, and normally we think that if the return to something uh, is running kind of at normal, then People, businesses ought to be holding a stock equal to normal. Um, and, uh, uh, but that's not what's happened. We've seen, we've seen normal return. The only exception, there, there was a, just a brief period in the 60s when, and this is a time when investment was very strong. Um, uh, but uh, but now, now we're just just have cruising along at, a, at a, what's a very long, it's a very stable relationship. This is absolutely a remarkable fact because you'd think that this is a residual. It's what's left in business after they've 
taken revenue from customers and paid it out to workers, and, and workers get about 65% of the total, um, and yet it's very stable. Uh, and in particular, you know, you can see a little downward blip here, and then immediate recovery. It was w only one year, 2009, when, when uh, this measure of, of business earnings uh, uh, declined, and then it was back to normal. You know, in 2010, it was back to normal. Long before anything else in the economy was normal, the earnings of capital was normal. This has received a lot of attention. The question of, even, you can see this even in the form of profit. Business has been just remarkably profitable um, uh, over this period. Uh, if, you, if you discerned, if you tried to find when recessions occur by profit recently, you just, it's just not there. Um, at, you know, at the same time that the earnings of workers uh, per worker declined quite a bit, uh, the same thing has not happened uh, to uh, the return to capital. So, um, so that's, a, that's something to think about. Uh, there's, and at the same time, it appears, certainly in terms of interest rates, this is a time when interest rates went from, say, 5% to zero and remain at close to zero today. Um, so if you thought that the interest rate was the, just was the cost of financing investment, um, then you'd expect that this ratio should, should be higher because interest rates are lower. It's cheaper to, to buy and hold uh, capital, uh, and uh, uh, so, so this ought to be rising. But, uh, so investment ought to rise. Um, but that's not what's happened. It looks like there's something impeding the flow of capital from the stock market and the bond market, where it seems to be very plentifully available at low prices, into businesses. So there's been a lot of discussion in, in uh, uh, macro theory about uh, so-called financial frictions. Well, the f it looks like there's a gigantic financial friction. I mean, I've been trying to get people to sort of focus on this way of thinking about it. The gap between this measure of return and what appears to be the, the financial cost of capital has gotten very large, and yet there's been no response of investment. And you saw, you saw the consequences here. Uh, this is not what should have happened by standard views. By standard views uh, with, um, oops, uh, by standard views with capital remaining highly profitable, the cost of capital declining, higher incentive to, to uh, uh, produce, uh, to invest in capital, uh, then uh, uh, we should have, if anything, certainly seen a continuation of this growth instead of this collapse. So, and this, this has been very widely discussed, not in this, so much in this framework, but uh, very widely discussed. Uh, there's, there's just a mystery of very low rates of capital formation uh, uh, in the U.S. economy in spite of the fact that it seems like the financial sources are there, the capital goods are there, but no one's buying them, and, and we're seeing this collapse of capital. Um, okay, so, um, so let me take you back then to, this is just a way of summary, summarizing the topics that I've now covered um, and say just a little bit more about uh, how I did this. The the unemployment and labor force are things that we're able to handle on through the concept of a production function. 
So we know the elasticity of the production function with respect to labor, 0.65. That's a very widely accepted number. Um, so if you take the, to get this, well, this, this number is zero, so it's not worried about it, but take this number. Um, so the labor force uh, is uh, something like five percentage points um, uh, below where it would have been. You take that to the power 0.65, and that tells you that it's 3.3 percentage points um, uh, over this period. Uh, with respect to productivity growth, this is so-called total factor productivity. So it's an index that multiplies the production function. That means that the elasticity is, by definition, one, a one percentage point increase in productivity given production function uh, with a given amount of, uh, of labor and capital raises output by 1%. Um, so, so this is the 6.6 percentage point uh, shortfall in total factor productivity directly. It does, there's no, no elasticity you have to worry about. Um, and then the depleted capital stock, uh, you saw that very large number. So the, the elasticity here is 0.35. Uh, so you, we're putting in a very big number uh, and taking, it, taking 35% of it and that's the 5.1 percentage uh, points. Um, so, so that again, the total story is this shocking 15.4 percentage point uh, shortfall, dominated by the productivity growth number, supported a lot by the uh, depleted capital stock, and then the, the, uh, the labor force comes in uh, third, and, and uh, resource utilization in the labor market not a factor at all. Okay, so um, then finally I want to wrap up fairly soon with uh, uh, a discussion of some of the policy implications uh, of this. Um, and uh, the one thing I haven't mentioned but is kind of at the, at the back of the story, and certainly if you look at more, uh, more elaborate versions, uh, you'll, uh, things that I've written or other people have written, you'll see that... Uh, the zero lower bound on, on the interest rate, uh, which has been a factor around the world, and certainly in the U.S., uh, was, uh, plays a role in the background of this discussion. So let me say a little bit about that. Normally, monetary policy can be thought of as a way of offsetting uh, disturbances in the economy. We take that to be uh, a responsibility um, in, in a typical recession, you see a decline in output and employment, and you also, if the economy's been on target with inflation, it typically also means that inflation dropped. And both those things happened uh, in 2008 and 2009. And then we say uh, the central bank should cut interest rates as much as necessary to offset that. Offsetting it means bringing employment back up to normal, unemployment down to normal. And that, by itself, should restore normal rates of inflation. So it's a no-brainer for monetary policy what to do uh, if, if a demand-type recession occurs, as, as happened uh, in 2008, 2009. Uh, so, well, that's exactly what central banks did. Uh, the, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank uh, cut its uh, policy rate to zero by just a couple months uh, after the crisis in September. Um, 
So that was just the right thing. Very speedy. Uh, the Monche policy was in the hands of, of a scholar, Ben Bernanke, who had studied all the mistakes that monetary policy had made in 1929. It was a very important part of his academic career. And he said, I'm not going to make that mistake. I'm going to move aggressively to, uh, to stimulate the economy and offset this big negative shock that had occurred. Well, it wasn't nearly enough. That's why we got to 10% unemployment uh, in, in 2010 in spite of immediate effective monetary policy. It just wasn't enough. Uh, so the story would have been very different if it hadn't been for uh, the inability of the interest rate to fall much below zero. Um, uh, so, uh, so that had all kinds of follow-on effects, uh, uh, in particular um, when, when the economy falls apart because of a demand shock like occurred in, in 2009, then it inhibits investment. It's already said that uh, the unemployment rose because uh, it inhibited investment in job creation. Uh, we saw that uh, intellectual property formation uh, was inhibited, uh, and we saw that plant and equipment uh, were inhibited. Uh, so, uh, uh, so all those things then become a drain or a drag on the economy later. So it's very important to understand, when, for example, when I talk about uh, the uh, depletion of the capital stock. The depletion of the capital stock, a lot of it occurred because of uh, the, what, the immediate events. Uh, so you, you, wouldn't, you shouldn't think that uh, this, the thing, that, and those things lasted after unemployment got back to normal. Uh, okay, so where does that leave us uh, today? This is something that Larry Summers has been uh, talking a lot about. Uh, and so this is by way of, of giving my support, looking at some things that I'm not sure he's looked at, um, uh, asking. So he's making the following point, a very, very important point. Uh, and that is that the zero lower bond is not a factor in the U.S. today because the Federal Reserve decided to raise the interest rate to a point higher. It had been pinned at zero or almost zero in the sense that they would like to have made it negative, but they felt they couldn't. Um, now they deliberately raised it. So that's a sign that that it's no longer a constraint. Um, but uh, even today, so they raised it 25 basis points, and then ever since, in fact, they, they just met um, a couple of days ago uh, and decided not to raise it, and they've gone many meetings now without uh, raising it again. They're very nervous, appropriately, about the fact that maybe, maybe the economy is going to go soft again and maybe, maybe the right thing is to lower the interest rate. How far down can they go? Well, at the moment, only, only a quarter of a percentage point. So the amount of stimulus that's available through monetary policy is still very small, uh, even though there is something that could happen. Any negative shock uh, has the potential for the monetary policy to do its job uh, is limited by whatever the interest rate is at that time. So this is a picture of what uh, the markets in, in uh, Treasury uh, bonds uh, in the U.S. and Wall Street uh, are telling us are, is the implied future rate. It's not the yield curve. Uh, it's something derived from the yield curve. Um, uh, and it's, it's, there are other ways of getting at similar numbers, and they all tell the same story. So today, uh, today we're, uh, it's about uh, half a percentage point. 
Um, and it is going to rise. It's going to rise on a relatively rapid track uh, until maybe 2022. Well, that's still that's quite a ways in the future. All that time, you know, for example, if we take 2018, then, then Wall Street says that the interest rate's going to be 1.2%. If there's a recession in 2018, the contribution that the Federal Reserve can make to offsetting that recession is very small. Uh, it's 1.2 percentage point, which is nothing like uh, the uh, way policy has behaved. Here's a picture of historical monetary policy. First of all, here's what happened in, in 2009. Instantly, or, yeah, next, that's not, anyway, instantly uh, uh, took the rate to zero. Well, it had been 5%. So there's five percentage points of stimulus available. If you look at earlier times, like, say, going into the 1990 recession, look what happened then. It was a very, it was a relatively small recession, but it, got a, it drew a big response, stimulative response. And that did a lot to, to offset what would have been a much more serious recession if they hadn't done that. Uh, if you go back to the 1982 recession, look at the amount of headroom here from 16%. So there's <laughs> magical... 16 percent. Uh, uh, so, and you can see that, uh, that this was less true. There was, there was much less opportunity to stimulate uh, in the period of very low inflation period of the early 50s, the mid-50s through 1960. Um, lots, of, lots of headroom here, even plenty of headroom recently. But now, going back to this picture, here's... here's Look at the difference in the scale. So even, say, 2028, which is more than 10 years in the future, we're still talking about an interest rate of below 2.5%. We're going to have to wait until 2044, even to have 3.5% of room to stimulate the economy. This is basically uh, paralyzing monetary policy. One, an- one simple answer is, if we just introduce some inflation, uh, if, if the bond market got a whiff of future inflation, uh, Janet Yellen gave a speech saying, okay, 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 I understand this analysis. We're going to set inflation at 6% a year. Uh, then these numbers would jump up immediately, uh, and then we'd be, feel comfortable that monetary policy could then lower uh, interest rates. Well, she's not saying anything like that. Uh, She'd be fired. I don't know if she can be fired, but a lot of people would say she should be fired um, if she said anything remotely like that. But, you know, some serious economists have, have pushed that. Um, the other interesting question which central banks, uh, especially in, in now in continental Europe, is saying, well, how far can we go with negative rates? Negative rates, in principle, would give the same stimulus. Um, there's a concern that if you push the rate too negative, people will start hoarding cash. So some economists said, great, let's get rid of cash. Let's just all use credit cards and so on to solve that problem. Um, and there are places in, in Scandinavia where, credit, where cash is practically not used anymore. But, uh, anyway, there's some answers, but uh, for the moment it looks like uh, we, we've basically lost, because world interest rates are just very low and don't seem to, no one seems to think that they're going to go up very much in the future. 
uh, we have this paralysis um, of uh, monetary policy, which is very worrisome. Um, uh, okay, so okay, so if you want, these are the sources, if you want to download that. Um, uh, okay, so the the last policy remark is that on the other hand, uh, low interest rates are great from the public finance point of view. Um, uh, the U.S. has a, a total government debt of just almost exactly equal to GDP, so that's seventeen, eighteen trillion dollars. Um, and at the moment, that debt, the carrying cost of that debt is quite low because it's a lot of it's been issued now during the low, during the period when uh, people would buy a thirty-year bond and expect to get only three percent interest on it, which is unprecedented in U.S. Uh, history. Um, so, so it makes the, the economic feasibility of having a high uh, government debt much better. Uh, and it seems, to, seems like we're likely to have a big government debt for many years. Um, and it's going to give us quite a bit of relief. There's been some c- concern that if we had to start paying 5 6 7% interest like we did historically on government debt, that it would just bring the federal government especially to its knees. All this suggests that you know if, if these numbers are right, um, uh, that the, the Treasury is going to be able to sell debt even in 2040 for less than three uh, percent, uh, which is what these markets are saying today. Um, then that gives us a lot of relief. It only postpones the problem though, because uh, the the all of the all of the spreadsheets for the especially for the federal government of the U.S., suggests that unless something drastic is done, it's going to start piling up debt faster and faster, even at very low interest rates. Um, so it doesn't completely solve the problem, but it pushes the problem another decade uh, into the future. Um, okay, so um, uh, the, I hope I've been able to uh, tell you some of the interesting and actually fairly complicated things that are going on uh, in the U.S. economy and other economies. Again, I haven't I, I, I don't have enough knowledge base to, to uh, do that uh, very convincingly. Um, uh, I think we have a little time for questions. Yeah, thank you, Robert. Okay, we have a time for, I think, two or three questions. I, I did see um, several of my colleagues' faces go white when you said that... Um, Demand factors are relevant, irrelevant to understand the current predicament oh, of the yeah, US. Come on, I didn't say that. Uh, <laughs> but, um, so we should study so the other things too. Let's start back there. Yeah, the gentleman with the red scarf. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Heide Rida from Bain & Company. One of the key questions which I've been trying to understand is what drives the productivity growth downwards so much? Um, because if we look at the key factors that have been driving that productivity growth uh, over the last 200 or 300 years in this in, since the Industrial Revolution, basically, knowledge sharing, technology, uh, education, all these factors are still there, and many of them are even accelerating further with increased knowledge sharing, increased education, etc. So what is it now that all of a sudden that productivity growth uh, is declining despite all these factors still being there? Thank you. Yeah. Robert, you know, before I you answer, sorry, let me just say, um, let's both keep questions and answers quick so we sure. can get more in. Yeah, okay. So, so I live in Silicon Valley, where, uh, which is, takes pride in, in uh, 
producing all these great new ideas. They're just dumbfounded by this. They just don't believe it. Um, uh, no, I wish I knew the answer. Uh, it seems like we have this, we have this great infrastructure, uh, especially in the U.S., venture capital and all those things. Anyone who has a great idea is, has a good shot at that. Uh, and yet, um, uh, when, you, when you look at the numbers, uh, many, many boring industries have done very badly in terms of productivity. So I, the trouble is, I think, that that the, the things that immediately come to mind, you know, the internet type things, are actually a pretty small fraction of, of the total. And you know, when you look at, at some places that have done badly, like mining, mining is a big deal, and it's hard to get productivity growth in mining. Uh, and that's uh, uh, and you know, healthcare and education are other areas where it's hard to get productivity growth. Um, it's very instructive, but not. Uh, uh, doesn't make you feel optimistic to just look at it industry by industry. Lady, um, just in front of the gentleman who just spoke. Hello, my name's Samuel. Uh, I'm a therapist. Um, when you were saying about the shrinkage of um, labor, and I'm thinking of... Uh, you know, robotics and things like that, automation, you know, in some countries it's, I think, nearly 50% is, um, you know, run by robotics and mm -hmm. things like that, the car industry and things like that, you know, in China, Germany, um, and whether people are turned into enterprises, you know, self-employment and innovation and uh, perhaps working from home and whether that is what is, um, can also drive the economy. Yeah, I, no, I think that we, throughout my career, uh, you know, people have been talking about that. Now, now, in some ways, it seems to have come true. Um, if you visit a factory, which I've done occasionally, you find that there still are people in it. And what do the people do? They, 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 they are alerted by a red light going on somewhere when there's something wrong with the machine. So humans are still very, very valuable in many, many kinds of jobs for their problem-solving skills. They don't do routine things anymore, but uh, in, a, in a factory full of robots, there's a whole cadre of workers who are experts at repairing robots and making them work. Um, but that also illustrates that, that the kinds of jobs that are well compensated today are the problem-solving jobs, and that's been shown over and over. The, the, the value of humans to do routine things, including routine things in offices, uh, is the value is not so high because those jobs have been automated. Um, it's not stopped the U.S. from having full employment. There's still opportunities for work for everybody who, who looks for it with a normal amount of turnover. So, so it's, it's not had this effect of disemploying people, but it has had a big effect on who gets the rewards. Uh, and we've seen very poor real income growth among people who don't have problem-solving skills and very high uh, uh, real wage growth for those who do. So the only answer that you know, most people can come up with is we ought to, we ought to try to instill problem-solving skills through schools uh, more effectively than we have. Gentleman with the scarf here.
for a fascinating... Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I usually have quite high volume, actually. But, uh, um, no, uh, thank you for a fascinating presentation, but the, the point that I've been haunted by for quite a while is uh, that creative destruction has been too creative and too destructive, and you've just touched on it there, you know, how the, shall we say, the highly productive workers are now extremely well rewarded, and those who are unfortunate enough to be replaced by technology might have had a reasonable job, and now they've got to go and work at McDonald's. So you've got real inequality creeping into the labour force. If you want to address stagnation, I don't want to be too simplistic about it, but it does seem that you have to address you know, that inequality because a lot of the productivity takes place in people's minds and as you alerted us to the teenagers sitting in front of their screens, a lot of the consumption takes place in the mind as well. And unless the labour force is significantly upgraded, I mean real investment, can we have productivity? Because we actually need smart consumers to buy those IP products as well. So yeah, maybe yeah, it's a simple yeah. solution. Yeah, you know, I wish. <laughs> you know, everyone, everyone who looks at the, the current state of the U.S. and similar economies says the same thing, which is the only answer that makes any sense uh, is to improve education. And in, in the U.S. in particular, uh, the quality of primary and secondary education is, is in many places, is, is unacceptably low. Um, but how to, how to make that happen? You know, we have several million school teachers, and, you know, it's just a... Uh, and it's run locally. I mean, it, I don't... I don't have good answers. Uh, you've, 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 I think you've identified nicely the, the issues. Um, uh, do bear in mind that we have an extraordinarily progressive tax system. Uh, taxes fall largely on, in the U.S. on people who make more than $100,000 a year, personal income taxes. That's, that takes you somewhere. The, we have a very expensive government, but we don't ask the lower half of the income distribution to pay for the government. All we ask them to do is to make their social insurance contributions, but they don't, they don't contribute significantly to the military. So, so at a minimum, so we, we're civilized in that respect. Uh, if we had a more effective education system, that would be another big step toward a civilized society. A person there? My name's Joseph Halligan. Uh, could the explanation be that labor is being substituted for capital because of low uh, real wages at the lower end of the market? Part of the slack might be taken up by the reduced unemployment that we've seen in the U.S. And also there's the issue of undocumented workers because your statistics are obviously official U.S. labor market statistics. But, of course, there are quite a lot of undocumented workers in the United States who I guess are going to be a source of uh, cheap labor and businesses might be using them rather than investing in capital and having endogenous productivity growth. Yeah, I, 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 bas I think that's right. I mean, businesses have a, basically a free choice between uh, more equipment or more workers, and, and workers uh, uh, are available uh, at low wages, um, and so we have full employment. Um, so in some ways that's good. It could be worse. Uh, uh, and certainly you notice that the penetration of some low-income replacement uh, uh, technologies are, you know, like, like self-checkout in, in grocery stores, which is very prominent here, hardly exists in the U.S., and that's because you can hire people to 
do it for you, and, and it just doesn't pay. Um, as far as undocumented, the surveys I'm talking about uh, make a very, very serious effort, I think mostly successful, to include undocumented workers. Um, there's some interesting differences between the surveys of businesses, which tend to be only documented, and the surveys of households, which include the undocumented. Um, but, you know, we, <laughs> there, where I live, uh, which, uh, there are, uh, there's a big Mexican community, and you see Mexican workers available on street corners, you know, you know for sure that they're not documented. So it's, a, it's an important part of our economy, I agree. I know there are many others who would like to ask questions. I, I also have many questions myself, but uh, we're out of time. So um, please join me in thanking uh, Bob again for a great lecture. Thank you.